Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is Keen on Democracy. A chill is enveloping the world. Everywhere I go these days, the conversation is the same. Everyone is fearful about the fate of democracy in our digital age. The same worried question is on all of our lips. What or who is killing democracy? Everybody wants to know. There's certainly no lack of suspects. Trump, Putin's trolls, Mark Zuckerberg, authoritarian populism, the wall, Victor Urban, fake news, Brexit, Bolsonaro, surveillance capitalism, Erdogan, Twitter, or last but certainly not least, the president of the People's Republic of China, Xi Jinping. So what's up with democracy these days? Is it really dying? Or is it simply shedding its industrial analog skin and updating itself for our networked digital age? That's the subject of this podcast series. This is a show featuring conversations about the most important issue of our age with some of the world's most incisive thinkers. I hope it both provokes and enlightens. The most acclaimed new book about technology this year is by the distinguished Harvard Business School professor Shoshana Zuboff. It's entitled The Age of Surveillance Capitalism the fight for a human future at the new frontier of power. But when I sat down with Zuboff in Berkeley last week, it became increasingly clear that the age of surveillance capitalism might have been subtitled the fight for a democratic future at the new frontier of power. So the big hit, the major new book about technology in 2019 is a book called The Age of Surveillance Capitalism, The Fight for a Human Future at the New Frontier of Power by Shoshana Zuboff. The Irish Times called it the most important book of the 21st century. A number of other authors have compared it to uh, capital in the 21st century in terms of its critique of the digital revolution. Shoshana Zuboff, congratulations. Have you been surprised with this huge acclaim for your book. I know it took you seven years to write. The book has been a a long project of intense study and concentration for many, many years and seven years of writing. You know, I think as an author, one always hopes, but one never knows. A lot of things worked out in terms of the timing for this book, because I think we're finally at a moment when many of us in the United States, in Europe, around the world are already beginning to have doubts about what this whole digital milieu, who's running it, who's controlling it, how is it affecting our lives, is it just, is it unjust, in what ways. A lot of people right now are trying to get their minds around this and trying to understand it and put words to a general sense of malaise of something's not right, but we don't know what to call it. So you've called it surveillance capitalism. What does that mean? Surveillance capitalism, the idea of surveillance refers to, let's say, the social relations that are required in order for this kind of economic logic to be successful. So I call it the social relations of the one-way mirror. In other words, if the methods and mechanisms of surveillance capitalists were out in the open, if they were known to us, we would be rebelling. We would be resisting. We would be saying no. 
and they would not be making any money. So who are the surveillance capitalists? Is, is it Google? Is it Facebook? Is it Amazon? Is it Apple? Surveillance capitalism was discovered, invented, and elaborated at Google in the teeth of financial emergency 2000-2001 during the dot-com bust. From there, it migrated to Facebook with Sheryl Sandberg. From there, it became the default option, essentially, in Silicon Valley and in, in the tech sector in general. But what's most interesting, Andrew, and what many of our listeners may not appreciate is that this is no longer a function of a single corporation or a few big tech corporations or even of the tech sector. This is now an economic logic that has spread across what we think of as the normal economy and has become the gold standard that people are chasing in virtually every economic sector, insurance, retail, health, finance, all the way sort of coming full circle to automobile manufacturing, where the great industrialists of the 20th century got their start because, of course, Ford Motor was the crucible of 20th century mass production. And now it's the CEO of Ford Motor who is publicly discussing that company's move toward what I describe as surveillance capitalism. I always imagined surveillance capitalism as being built around the business model of free. But are you suggesting that surveillance capitalism can also involve people still selling products and then building data and the destruction of privacy on the back of that? Oh, yes. We blew by free a long time ago. First of all, the devices that participate in surveillance capitalism representing interface for these vast supply chains of behavioral data that are being shunted to machine intelligence operations. We pay for devices, we pay for the phone, we pay for the television set that is listening to our conversation, we pay for the mattress that has the sensors in it that's siphoning data to the Nest thermostat that's siphoning data to the Nest security system that just a couple of weeks ago was revealed to have a microphone <laughs> built into it. And Nest, These of course, is owned, by, owned Google. by Google. So that's one way that we're paying for it, but we're also paying for it. You know, the insurance industry now, the frontier in the insurance industry is what they call behavioral underwriting, where they are trying to tap into data streams about our real-time behavior as well as other sources of personal information and use that for their evaluations of their premiums. So putting it in simple language, in the old days, in the industrial age, you, everyone bought the same insurance and the insurance company didn't know too much about you. These days, in the age of surveillance capitalism, they'll know how many times we go to the gym, whether we smoke, what we eat where we walk, if we walk at all. Is that what surveillance capitalism is? Yes. So for the example- The complete destruction of privacy. It's the complete destruction of privacy. And I would stress with that, in order to have privacy, we have to have decision rights. We have to have the right to make decisions about the boundaries of our own experience. And what surveillance capitalism does carefully and intentionally is to engineer their methods and systems to bypass our awareness so that we never know what, when, how they are claiming our personal experience as raw material 
to translate into personal data, to ship to their machines, to create predictions about our future behavior. And because we are intentionally engineered to be ignorant of this whole structure, we have lost the right to put boundaries on our own experience. We've lost the right to decide what is private and what is public. We've lost the right to exercise our own sense of self-determination and our own individual autonomy. And this is intolerable because ultimately when we just zoom out a little bit, we understand that one can't even think of the possibility of a democratic society without the assumption that we have citizens who have agency, who have some kind of free will, who have the ability to make autonomous moral judgments, and in a whole variety of ways, compelled by their own economic imperatives, surveillance capitalism is on a collision course with these elements of human freedom. Well, I want to get back to democracy, which is the core theme in this show. But before we do that, we're not even 10 minutes into this conversation. And I'm sure a lot of the listeners are so scared. It's such a chilling message you're giving out. They're saying, well, I'm going to give up my cell phone. I'm getting off the internet. I'm getting off the grid. Can people do that? Well, I'm so glad that you asked this question early in our conversation, because I do want our listeners to understand that what I'm describing is startling and unprecedented, and we'll talk about its threats to democracy, I know, in a few minutes. But I also want people to understand that what's critical here is that we're talking about an economic logic. We're not talking about technology itself. Mm. So it's not like we're up against some sort of inevitable wave of technological transformation against which we are helpless to shape the future. That is not the case, folks. That is not the case. Nothing that we're talking about here is inevitable. We can easily imagine the digital without surveillance capitalism, but we cannot imagine surveillance capitalism without the digital. The reason why this is good news and calls for optimism is that our democratic societies already have experience with how we muster our resources to tame and tether and constrain and outlaw the raw excesses of a violent capitalism and impose law and impose regulatory regimes. We did this to end the Gilded Age. We did this during the Great Depression. We did this after World War II. We know how to do this. And what we're experiencing now is not the end, but the beginning of a new cycle in which we have to come together in new forms of collective action. It's not you giving up your privileges to engage with the internet, which you need in order to be just modestly effective on a day-to-day basis. And many of us have read the accounts of journalists who've tried to give up Google and Facebook and Amazon and, and Apple and all the rest. What I'm saying is that withdrawing from some of these channels as an individual may actually be good for your health and good for your life, but they are not the political solution. Collective action is the political solution, and that is within our reach now. That's what we are beginning to address. 
Join the dots between the shift towards authoritarianism, Brexit, Trump, Putin, China, and surveillance capitalism. <laughs> okay. Easy question, Shusha. Well, those are a lot of dots, my friend. So let, but let, is, there, let's... is there a single path in those dots, or is it an interconnected series of dots? No. All of those dots, certainly China, Cambridge Analytica, what we now understand to be the, the Russian intelligence interventions in these elections, all of those dots derive from one central source. And that is the two decades of careful invention and elaboration of the methods and mechanisms of surveillance capitalism. And what Cambridge Analytica and China and Russia represent is a way of commandeering these mechanisms and methods and just pivoting them a couple of degrees instead of toward commercial outcomes, pivoting them toward political outcomes. But they all derive from the same source. And in fact, you know, when you understand what Cambridge Analytica was up to, those methods that they used had begun to be developed by academic researchers as early as 2010, 2011, and were already being adapted by surveillance capitalists. And even after the Cambridge Analytica revelations, which were in March 2018, we have a leaked document from Facebook in April 2018, only a month after those March revelations, that is a beautiful description of Facebook doing what Cambridge Analytica did and doing it on steroids. Just beginning with Cambridge Analytica, what we see there is a sort of day in the life, ho-hum, routine, please pass the salt, Andrew, life of a solid, self-respecting surveillance capitalist. John Borthwick, the CEO of Betaworks, a well-known venture capitalist, early stage venture capitalist, has argued on this show that uh, he doesn't see that much difference between what Facebook has done or is doing and the Chinese government. Do you see much of a distinction between the two? Yes, I do so far. The question for all of us, and that's where democracy comes in, is whether or not he turns out one day to be right. So what we see in China is a different situation. First of all, China is an authoritarian state. And in one way or another, it always has been. I don't mean to gloss over the complexities of Chinese history, but China has been an empire, an autocracy, now an authoritarian state throughout its history. It is a different case. And even the Chinese themselves think of the world in terms of Chinese exceptionalism. So China's history is an exception it is not part of the Western tradition of democracy. Now, what's happening in China is, you know, for a while there has been this opening toward a market economy and trying to figure out how you combine a market economy with an authoritarian state. And obviously this has not been easy. For a while it looked like there might be move towards a more democratic opening, but now those windows appear to be closing or closed. So what we have in China is over these years, particularly during the Mao period, a complete destruction of social trust in that society. And essentially, everything is down to your family members. Those are the only people that you trust. 
right in your immediate familial network. And now you have the Chinese state trying to reinstitute some kind of control in the society because things really are out of control because of the complete dissolution of trust. We use the word trust and we don't really think about it, but you, know, you can't get behind the wheel in your car if there isn't social trust because you have to believe that when you go through the green light, the person on the other side is going to stop at the red light. That's social trust. It's that fundamental and it's mm. everywhere. And if that stops working in a society, you've really got a problem. So in China, what the state has realized is that in this private sector, it's huge internet companies, the Tencent, the Baidu, and so forth. These companies have been surveillance capitalists on steroids. They're huge. They have a massive amount of data. The Chinese people are more accustomed to surveillance. They accept surveillance in a way that we, as members of democratic societies and traditions, do not. And so they are surveillance capitalists on steroids. Now, this authoritarian government sees a huge amount of personal data, sees the ability to use that data to actually control behavior and to change social behavior. And suddenly they're asking themselves, why are all these data in the hands of private companies? We want that data. We want to control that data. And we're going to use that data in a way, now we connect a dot with Cambridge Analytica, Chinese state wants to use all these data about individuals and very specific reams of personal data. It wants to use these data, again, not to achieve commercial goals, but to achieve social and political goals. So for example, Andrew, if we discover that you have a bunch of parking tickets you haven't paid. How did you know? Mm, I, saw, <laughs> I saw your eyebrows twitch on that one. Uh, the next time you go to buy a first-class seat on a high-speed train, you will be denied the right of purchase until you pay your parking tickets. Let's say there's some kind of court demand. You're supposed to appear in court and you haven't done so. You will not be able to rent a car. You will not be able to perhaps buy a television set. You will not be able to get a bank loan until you appear in court. Well, you've really chilled me out, Shoshana, with the idea of me not being able to own a television set. <laughs> so what do we do about it? The subtitle of your book is The Fight for a Human Future, and, and your definition of a human future is one with human agency. How do we re-establish human agency in a world where it seems as if we've lost it? Where do we begin? We begin with democracy. And then democracy and democracy and democracy. And democracy is the sort of manifestation, do you think, of human agency? The purest manifestation, the will of the people? Democracy, everything depends upon democracy. And I'm sure that everyone listening to us understands that we're living in a moment, both in the United States, in Europe, and other parts of the world, democracy appears to be under siege in a way that many of us thought was unimaginable. Democratic institutions are being tested, and some have fallen, even within Western Europe, which we thought was inviolable to these kinds of threats. What are you talking about? Hungary, Poland, Yes, I'm Italy. talking about Hungary, Poland, Italy. Brexit. The Brexit vote, how the Brexit vote came about. And I'm talking about what's happening in the United States now as well, where both the 2016 presidential elections and the pattern that we've seen coming from the White House since those elections. They're constantly 
kind of a battering ram at, at some of the most basic precepts of our democratic institutions and the rule of law. So it's easy, you know, when I say everything depends upon democracy, it's easy right now to feel, oh boy, you know, how's that going to work? You know, well, democracy is under siege. How are we going to get it back? It's a great, it's a, we're grabbing it back. The human future is something we have to seize. It's not going to be given to us. So I talk to young people a lot, and a lot of my, my lectures and events are filled with young people. And what I've come to understand is that a lot of people, especially young people, can have the idea that democracy is like a rock. It's like a, a mountain. It's there when you're born, and it stays there, and it's immovable. But that's not what democracy is. Democracy, my metaphor for it is more like early 20th century, the hoop game that kids played in the late 19th, early 20th century where you didn't have toys and you got a big uh, wheel hoop and you roll it and then you run after it and you try to keep it from teetering and falling over. Mm. It requires a lot of work, in other words. Every generation faces the work of running after that hoop and preventing it from teetering and falling over. And that's where we are now. And I believe that we've been in worse jams. You look at the bloody story of the 20th century, we've been in worse jams. My grandparents, my great-grandparents have been in worse jams, and we found our way out. Where were your grandparents from, your great-grandparents? Well, some were from Russia, some were from Italy, some fled the pogroms. My Italian part of my family fled during World War II. I think so much about their courage and what they faced. I think about the courage that my father faced when he went to war. So, uh... Is this another war, Shoshana? Is this equivalent to war in some way? This fight against surveillance capitalism? Well, you know, Chris Wiley, the Cambridge Analytical whistleblower, to whom we owe a great debt because he revealed so much of important to us and to the world, he called it information warfare. And the thing about this information warfare is it's not states facing off against one another, soldier to soldier, military to military. When we talk about surveillance capitalism, it's actually private capital, private surveillance capital facing off against all of us. So is this an equivalent, if we want to think of things in historical terms, you said we've been through this before, we've fought it before. Is the real reference the 19th century and the fight against what Marx called bourgeois capitalism or industrial capitalism? Let me give you this analogy. Earlier in the 19th century in Britain, you had the term aristocracy and you had the term wealthy class. And then for everyone else, everyone else, you had one term, it was called the lower classes. And the reason was in the lower classes, you had bankers and merchants and shopkeepers and laborers and paupers and everything in between the lower classes. And it took decades for the idea of the laborer to emerge. As a thing of dignity. As an identity, mm. where people identified themselves as laborers with themselves, with one another. They identified with one another as a collective identity because they understood their shared economic interests. And that's what we need to do today. We have to think of ourselves, if you like, as data laborers. No. Let me amend that. Today, we are called users. Or consumers. Or consumers. But users. But users. That's a great word, yes. Users. And by calling us users, we didn't start off by calling ourselves users. <laughs> they mm -hmm. call us users. It's interesting that people also describe 
drug addicts as users. As users, exactly. And I don't think that's an accident. So we thought that we are using these services, as you a little while ago called them free. We thought we were using social media. We thought we were using search. In fact, they are using us. Right. So here we are again, the great unwashed users. Just What's like a better word the then, Shoshana? How should we be rethinking ourselves so, with language, which of course is always so important in terms of democracy and politics? Yes. So where we are now is understanding not just our economic interests, as was the case a century ago, mm. when we understood our interests as laborers, as employees, and also as consumers, and all economic we, roles. And we saw the creation of unions <laughs> and striking. And, and we came together rights. in those identities, new forms of collective action, specifically to address the challenges of 20th century industrial capitalism. And that was, yes, the institutions of collective bargaining, of trade unions, of the right to strike. We used our identities to pressure our elected officials and draw on the resources of our democratic institutions for new legislation and new regulatory regimes. We outlawed child labor. We outlawed unsafe working conditions. We created legislation that governed the work week and wages. And we rewrited the incredible asymmetry of power that mm. existed at that time. And we made it something tolerable that approached an equilibrium that we could call market democracy. Now we are way out of that equilibrium mm. again. We've entered the 21st century, Andrew, already disfigured institutionally. So we talked about the threat to democracy from below, which is the threat to human autonomy and free will because of the way in which surveillance capitalists has developed methods to intervene in our behavior and nudge and control and modify our behavior to help manage us toward its guaranteed outcomes, which is one of its critical imperatives. But I also want to point out we have the threats from above, because institutionally now, we've entered the 21st century, these first two decades, with these institutions of private capital having created asymmetries of knowledge that are beyond anything that we've ever seen in human history. So this is not only economic justice that is challenged here, as we saw a century ago. This is justice about knowledge. This is justice about who gets to know things, who decides who gets to know things, who decides who decides who gets to know things. And now that we live in an information society, an information civilization, if we aren't able to know things, we aren't able to earn a living, we aren't able to function effectively. So what you're saying then is that the old tools of taming capitalism, of antitrust, of breaking up large companies, of more regulation, that's probably not sufficient in the age of surveillance capitalism to I would reclaim say democracy and reclaim human rights. Necessary, but not sufficient. Because and it requires new, new strategies, new ways of thinking, new ways of organizing, new ways of conceiving of ourselves. We have not adequately implemented our, the antitrust laws that exist. And those laws are important because surveillance capitalists can also be ruthless capitalists. And there are monopoly issues and there are anti-competitive issues and we should implement those laws. We have not implemented our privacy laws. In 2011, the FTC had a consent decree with Facebook that has not been enforced. So all of these laws should be enforced and they are necessary. But 
Once we understand the specific economic logic of surveillance capitalism, its mechanisms, the way it works, the fact that it unilaterally takes private human experience for translation into behavioral data, no matter how much we implement antitrust, we're not going to stop those mechanisms. So we also need to build on what has gone before and to invent the precise new kinds of laws and regulatory regimes that are going to interrupt and even outlaw the specific mechanisms of surveillance capitalism. For example, people talk about data ownership. You said a moment ago, are we laborers just, you know, producing our labor? Well, once we get comfortable with the idea that we are producing labor and we should get paid for it and we should own our data and it should be monetized and we should benefit from that, we have omitted this very important first step because by saying we should own the data, we've essentially legitimated the fact that those data should exist in the first place when those data exist illegitimately. You're walking down the street and there are cameras that are doing facial recognition. Those cameras are funneled into these private channels, these private supply chains for surveillance capitalism. I don't like to use the I word. I don't like to use inevitable. But given the nature of Moore's law, given the devices that we all use, isn't that data inevitable? What's not inevitable is how it gets used. Given the Internet of Things, given self-driving cars, data is inevitable. The personal data you're talking about isn't the question of how it gets used is the question. No, 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 no. You can't get no. rid of data, No, no, no. No one wants to get rid of data. The whole point of the digital was that we would have a tremendous amount of data that would help us to improve our lives. Which we have, I mean, in a sense. I mean, we still <laughs> use maps to get... Well, Look, I'm not... And, As you know, Andrew, I'm a, a skeptic of some of this stuff too, but I mean, some of it's useful, isn't it? We're, we're, we're talking about millions and millions of data points, personal information that is processed by Facebook on a daily basis and Google and others on a daily basis, not to fix healthcare, not to address the climate crisis, not to invent something that will fundamentally make hunger impossible, but rather to improve its ability to predict our behavior and to sell those predictions into its new behavioral futures markets, where it sells predictions on our behavior to business customers who want to lay bets on what we're going to do now, soon, and later. Should that just right? be illegal then? So that should be illegal. So here we have this hugely lucrative form of capitalism traveling across our economy that does not require us as customers, that has massive knowledge about us that is not used for us, that knows everything about us while we know almost nothing about it, these great asymmetries I'm talking about, all of this for the benefit of business customers and not for us. This is a perversion of what our hopes for the digital were. This is a perversion of what our hopes for data were. You know, you go back to that window between, say, 1996 and 2003, before the world caught on to surveillance capitalism, before Google IPO'd, especially in 2004. What you see there are tremendous projects that were already in train, projects for the smart home, projects for telemedicine, and all of the assumptions in those projects 
or that we're going to get all of this tremendous data from these devices, and those data are going to go to the occupant of the home, or they're going to go to the patient and the patient's physician. Those are the people who get the data. Those are the people who figure out what it means. Those are the people who figure out if and how it's shared. That is what we have lost. That was the promise of the digital empowerment, democratization, emancipatory, radical improvement of our lives. That is the promise that we have lost. So this has nothing to do with the digital technology itself. The data to improve our lives does not depend upon invading our boundaries and taking the thousand measures of the muscles in our faces in order to compute our emotional state, in order to have superior predictions of our behavior, in order to sell it to businesses who can then make money knowing what we are likely to do and want or say. Shoshana, have we reached the political tipping point here? Your book has been enormously successful. It's the big hit of the year so far in the tech world. Elizabeth Warren quite recently came out very explicitly about breaking up the large tech monopolies. Is this now a mainstream political issue? Is it indeed the political issue of the future? I think that we are living in a moment when it has become a mainstream political issue. And the challenge for us is to keep it so. Because what stands between us and that Chinese scenario we were talking about a little while ago, I've gone through this analysis, Andrew, and when you look at very specific things that surveillance capitalists do, and you look at very specific things that happen under the power of the Chinese state as it takes the capabilities of this data and the ability to modify human behavior at scale on the, on the back of all these data, the differences are not very large. You know, there are differences <laughs> that are sort of nuanced rather than dramatic. So you're applauding what, say, Warren is saying. Do you want to see more what of I'm that? What I'm applauding is that we have a woman who's a candidate for the Democratic presidential nomination who is making this an issue and she's not alone. There are others as well who are making this an issue. And they're doing so because we have come to understand that this is a threat not only to us as free and autonomous individuals, but it is a threat to the very possibility of the endurance of our democracy. Let's remind everybody, what is democracy? It is the one form of government that has been created in human history that says people should govern themselves. It is not perfect. It goes through its ups and downs, and we are vigilant, and we lose our vigilance, and then our vigilance is reawakened to fight for it and keep it robust. But for literally millennia, Andrew, people have died and sacrificed for this idea. It is imperfect. It is an ideal that is never imperfectly realized. Including your, your family. Including my family. But this is an ideal that as a people, as a species, we cannot afford to give up this ideal. The fact that we have come to understand the digital now has been hijacked by an economic logic that does not have our interests at heart. It is an economic logic that makes money by unilaterally claiming our private experience, by using it to predict our behavior 
And also it has come to understand that the best way to predict our behavior is to intervene in our behavior and shape our behavior toward its goals. And then its predictions gradually come to approximate observation, certainty. This is an assault on human autonomy. And then we look at it institutionally. We see these huge asymmetries of knowledge that are used against us. What Cambridge Analytica did to create political behavior that it sought, the plutocratic owner, the billionaire owner, Robert Mercer of Cambridge Analytica, seeking to disrupt democratic politics, used these same methodologies to change people's political attitudes and get them to vote in a certain way. So what we see now is that this is essentially using this knowledge asymmetry as a weapon against us. And your book, of course, The Age of Surveillance Capitalism, is a weapon to fight back. That's your way of fighting back. You spent seven years writing this book. As I said at the beginning, people are comparing it to Piketty's Capital in the 21st Century as the most important book on the nature of the digital economy. I want to end with a couple of questions. Firstly, who were you trying to emulate with this book? When I blurbed the book, I described it as Arendtian, and I thought of her work on totalitarianism. Were there books that you were trying to emulate as you spent seven intense years of your life researching and writing this book? Was it Marxist Capital? Was it Piketty? Was it Arendt? I mean, you must be thrilled with a lot of the response. Were you particularly thrilled when people compare you to Piketty or Arendt or Marx or whoever? Do you consider yourself in a tradition, a critical tradition? What I tried to do in this book was name something that had not yet been named. That really was my goal, because I do believe that we cannot begin to coalesce. We cannot begin to discover that right to contest, that right to combat, until we can actually grasp what's going on. And that requires naming it. We have to understand what's actually going on. And until my book, I think, and this is something that John Naughton at Cambridge wrote about, we've had sort of pieces of the elephant that have been described. Mm. And what I explicitly set out to do is to describe the elephant. And in my own mind, you know, there have been books over the years and over the past couple of centuries who have achieved something like that. And that's really the, Which what I wanted we're, to we're, do. We're, any come to mind? Certainly Orwell. Certainly Arendt's book on the origins of totalitarianism. But also other kinds of books. For example, Betty Friedan, when she wrote The Feminine Mystique, she began by saying, this is a book about the problem that has no name. For our listeners of a certain age, mm. <laughs> when I talk to my kids about Betty Friedan, they don't know what I'm talking about. But for listeners of a certain age, they will remember that The Feminine Mystique was a book that today we would say it went viral. And it was because it named something that so many people were feeling, but they didn't have a language for. Rachel Carson did something exactly. similar with, with the, the Silent Spring, where we understood that there were grave threats to our environment but we still did not have a language for what was going on, and Rachel Carson provided that. You mentioned Marx. Marx did something like this in his book, Capital, but so did Adam Smith, who observed the pin factory and the division of labor and described and theorized and worked through the underlying economic logic and consequences 
of that new division of labor that he observed and gave us the foundations of our understanding of industrial capitalism that really has been the foundation that took us uh, right up through the 20th century. So it's language. And, and so you mentioned Orwell, um, his famous essay on politics in the English language. Yes, euphemism uh, and how we battle back against euphemism. To but language truly, as a weapon. Yes, and this language is as a weapon. the core weapon in fighting back. Yes. So we need to understand, we need to clear the rhetorical fog I use Orwell's discussion of euphemism quite explicitly, that we have been the targets of euphemism search, for example. You know, we've been told that it's free when we're the ones who are free. We think of it as free, they think of us as free. We think we're searching Google, Google thinks it's searching us. We think we're the user, but we're being used. They tell us they have privacy policies. Those policies are actually surveillance policies. There are all kinds of ways in which language has been disfigured. We're told that, you know, we have the option of a notice and consent when everyone knows, including every legal scholar who's looked at this closely, that clicking I agree is not informed consent. It is a cruel charade, a kind of kabuki that literally leaves us no choice. So pushing through the euphemisms, the rhetoric, and the misdirection, because surveillance capitalists have also been great artists at misdirection, telling us they're doing one thing when in fact they're doing something else. So language matters. Shoshana has argued with great sophistication and passion in the age of surveillance capitalism, we need to be careful about the words we use when we're rebuilding democracy. Indeed. You're listening to Keen on Democracy with your host, Andrew Keen. Hello, I'm Jason Sanderson, the producer of the show, and this interview is with Shoshana Zuboff. Stick around as Andrew will be back after a quick break while we hear from our sponsors. Hi, my name is Steffi Czerny, and I'm the founder of the DLD Conferences. DLD is short for Digital Life Design and explores how the digital age fundamentally changes our world. Founded in Munich in 2005, DLD is now a globally connected community of thinkers, doers, and communicators. We host conferences in Munich, New York, Tel Aviv, Singapore, and Brussels. And we are very proud of our interdisciplinary outlook and even more so of our track record of discovering trend topics early on. Andrew Keane is a long-time, long-term DLD friend who has done many interviews at DLD conferences. If you like this podcast, you should join one of our events. Our motto for this year is optimism and courage. We want to put a really positive spin on recent technological developments from AI through blockchain to quantum computing and discuss which impact they have on business as well as politics and society. Visit our website at dld.co and apply for your ticket. Thanks so much for sticking around. Now here's Andrew with his five takeaways from this interview with Shoshana Zuboff. Something's not right, but we don't know what to call it, Shoshana Zuboff tells us. It's a problem with no name, she explains. So I set out to name the elephant. And what Zuboff has done more than anything else in the age of surveillance capitalism is indeed to name that elephant, 
Like Rachel Carson in Silent Spring or Betty Friedan in The Feminine Mystique, Zuboff has unfogged our minds. She spent seven years simplifying, seven years untangling the technology and language of Silicon Valley. Yes, language matters, Zuboff is telling us. We need to use our words carefully, particularly in terms of fighting back against the sophisticated PR artilleries of Silicon Valley. And the idea of fighting back is no metaphor. We are in a war, she tells us, an information war, one defined by asymmetries of knowledge between the ubiquitous Silicon Valley platforms and ourselves. So what exactly is surveillance capitalism? Zuboff's description of it as the social relations of the one-way mirror is hauntingly exact. Created and elaborated by Google at the turn of the century and now spreading virally throughout the economy, this appropriation of our data represents what she calls the complete destruction of privacy. It takes away what she calls the boundaries of our own experience. We can no longer determine our autonomy. As I suggested in my introduction, the age of surveillance capitalism might have been subtitled The Fight for a Democratic Future at the New Frontier of Power. That's because Zuboff thinks that democracy is the most human of qualities and it's the very thing that is being most undermined by surveillance capitalism. This economy, she warns, is on a collision course with freedom. She's right, of course, especially the way in which surveillance capitalism in its sophisticated campaigns of disinformation undermines human agency. But as Zuboff reiterates time and time again, it doesn't have to be this way. Rather than technology, the problem is what she calls the economic logic of digital capitalism. And whilst we can't have surveillance capitalism without digital, we can imagine a digital world without surveillance capitalism. But how? The solution, she argues, is collective action. The solution is democracy. So just as we organized against the great injustices of industrial capitalism in the 19th and 20th centuries, we need to organize against the equally unfair practices of 21st century surveillance capitalism. We've done it before and we'll do it again, Zuboff says. That indeed is what being human is all about. Next week, we return to a more optimistic take on technology. I'll be talking with the prolific tech journalist and author Clive Thompson, who has a new book out called Coders, The Making of a New Tribe and the Remaking of the World. Thompson will explain the civic impact of these coders and how this new tribe might remake democracy. I look forward to talking with you then.